Welcome to Color Me Dead. This is a true crime podcast, and we talk about murder and fuckery most foul in detail while using the darkest of humor. If you don't like words like fuck and cunt, then you probably shouldn't listen. But if you do, then join us while we fuck your feelings. All right. Okay, everybody. 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 Mm-hmm. All y'all. All y'all motherfuckers. Motherfucker. I gotta get my southern in. <laughs> get it in where you fit in. Oh, that's what she said. Ew. <laughs> what What was that? Um, it's oh, short and fat and fills the gap. Whoa. He's like, I'm not popular, but I'm short and fat and it fills the gap. Ew. <laughs> Ew, no. We are on episode 96. We are back with the Emmett Till murder part two. Two. The story we thought we knew. I didn't think I knew it. There's a couple people that uh, did not have a clue about this entire thing. Yeah, I didn't either. So History is not my thing. Well, and the history that they taught us in the middle of Utah didn't exactly include black history. No. So. No. Yeah. And I actually got into a conversation with one of our listeners on the Color Me Dead page in regards to this. And, uh. Long story short, he was like, you know, I didn't even know who Malcolm X was until the movie. Right. And I said, the only reason that I knew who some of these black historian, or historian, historical, fuck me, historical figures were is because I'm a documentary junkie. And I have been since I was very young. And so there's a lot of things that I learned that were never taught in school because I had satellite thank god for that so if you guys want to go and check us out you can go to ageofradio.org slash org or org listen if you want to check out our po- <laughs> this is my week one me or this is my week this is my voice one week in minnesota <laughs> minnesota if you guys want to check us out at ageofradio.org slash color me dead <laughs> I have to do it like uh, Rick Moranis from Strange Room. <laughs> yep. Hey, I'm not the one with the bleeding nose, eh? Eh. <laughs> Take off, you hoser. Take off, you hoser. <laughs> so, if you guys want to check us out, um, shop our sponsors, donate to our Patreon, listen to our episodes, go check out other shows through the syndicate, go to ativeradio.org slash colormedead. Um, Patreon, thank you to our examinators. We have Rhett Harris, Melissa Morgan, Samantha Vaughn, and Sharon Hoffman. Shanks. Badasses. We have lots of Patreons right now. They're all bad motherfuckers. I started sending shit out today, too. Oh, hey. Slowly. One tier at a time, because there are a lot of you. Yes, and it takes some time, especially when we get a bunch all at once, and we did. A lot of new... We really did. A lot of new Patreons. So thank you guys very much. We genuinely appreciate all of your pledges. And we got new stickers that are going out to everybody. The Color Me Dead stickers. I got the vinyl kind that you can put in the dishwasher. Yay! Fuck yes. Finally. Finally. I know. And we've got some things that our friends have helped us with. Um, Loose... Fuck me before I say it and I fucked all up. <laughs> I, that's about that's about right. I'm just saying. Do, do, do. So Jordy Turner has put together some sticker slash t-shirt material for us. I'm so excited. Um, and she is not the only person working on things. However, she is one of the people that I've been in like close contact with. And she put together a beautiful musty charms. Fuck. Yes. And I'm very excited for that. I can't wait for a Musty Charm shirt. Yes. 
I know. I'm going to wear it in public, too. I know. I Well, and <laughs> Kagan's working on a... Did you just ford it? Yep. Did you just ford it? Did you just ford it? Mofucka. Mofucka. <laughs> um, so there, there are going to be some new things. I've got a couple that I've been working on. Um, so you guys will be seeing some new Patreon goodies go out. Uh, oh, merch. Merch. You can go to colormedeadpod.threadless.com and find all of our merchandise. Um, also, if you want to check us out on social media, you can find us uh, on Twitter at Color Me Dead Pod. You can find us on Facebook at Color Me Dead Podcast. And if you want to join the melting pot of debauchery that is known as the Color Me Dead Podcast group, please feel free to join. I went on Twitter the other day and made a post. Yeah, I know. I saw it and then everybody liked it. it and I was like, what the fuck? You guys, like, I get on Twitter more than she does, and she got more likes just showing up. <laughs> fuck well, you guys. fuck. <laughs> Shit. Come to me. Come to butt Come head. to butthead. <laughs> uh, if you guys want to find us on Instagram, it's Color Me Dead Podcast. You can follow Nikki at Gory underscore Nikki. Or me at Color Me Dead Angel. Yeah. yeah. I go on there. I go on Instagram. <laughs> I go on Instagram. <laughs> I go on there sometimes. I go on Twitter once every six months, and I go on Facebook ish, ish, ish. It's mostly me. Um, let's see. So the book that I used for research on this is called "The Blood of Emmett Till" by Timothy Tyson. Um, on this episode, please be advised that at this time, if details of murder are something that you aren't ready to hear. Discontinue listening. If you're squeamish or you're sensitive, turn off the episode and Google what you feel is appropriate. Furthermore, if we, as Color Me Dead hosts, use language that is slander, not slanderous. What's the word I'm looking for? That you don't like? Well, that too. Derogatory. Derogatory racist. racial slurs. We are directly quoting. This is not language that we use on a daily basis. No, this is from the South in 1950-something. Yeah. Um, just know that these are direct quotes. And while it's uncomfortable to you guys or even us, um, we've always talked about, you know, it's our sworn podca- podcasting duty to deliver you guys the dirty details and... To be as accurate as possible. so And as gory. As gory as we can be while still being respectful to our victims. So at that, you know, please proceed with caution. Um, like I said, if you're uncomfortable with language or details that might be too much to you, just stop listening right here and maybe Google and be careful what you Google. Yeah, watch yourself, because I was just looking for a picture of his face, mm-hmm. and I found a picture of his face that I don't like. Yeah. Gory fuck, gory fucked around. Gory fuck. <laughs> Nikki fucked around and found a postmortem photo that I forgot to warn her about. It was rough. Yeah, it was. Also, I wanted to make a correction. Um, last week on the episode, when we were referring to uh, Emmett's mother, Mamie, and during the time that he was born and his toddler ages, I kept saying 1955, which is incorrect. He was a toddler in the 1940s. Um, that being said, I get stuck on 1955 because that was the date that was pounded into my brain as I did a lot of this research. Um so for that, I apologize because that was incorrect. But nobody said anything about it, which makes me believe that either nobody caught it or nobody felt it necessary to correct me. So I'm going to jump in there and do it before 
somebody does. They're just too scared of you. They're like, well, it was really this, but she'll fucking kill me, so I'm not going to say it. Whatever. I'm not that dangerous. <laughs> Danger. So, you ready? Here it go. You like to hit? Here it go. Um, so, last week, just a quick recap, we talked about Carolyn Bryant, who is the woman responsible for some lies told. We talked about Mamie Till and Emmett and uh, their history, as well as Roy Bryant and his half-brother, J.W. Millam, and the Bryant-Millam family. Um, Briefly talked about when the memoir that Carolyn Bryant wrote, More Than a Wolf Whistle, will be available in good old 2036. And you'll see why after this episode. Right? So, uh, Mr. Tyson, that was given that unpublished copy, gave it to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I still have not unearthed the reason it won't be... Because she's a liar. She is a liar. My opinion. She's a liar. She's a liar. But I haven't had anything substantially posted or published that said they're not publishing it until 2036 because of this. So from this point further, it's just speculation station, dude. Do you think maybe when she dies, she'll be like, all right, you can have it a few years early. I don't know. She should. If anybody knows her. Tell her to change her mind. Change the date. No, no. I changed your mind for you. That's what we do. That's what we do. So what is the story that we thought we knew when it came to the untimely death of Emmett Till in August of 1955? Well, so what what most of us know, finger quotes, is that a boy from Chicago made an inappropriate pass at a white woman at the Bryan's grocery store. Now, was this based on a dare from his friend or his older cousins? And what did Emmett say to upset Carolyn so much? Did their hands meet during the exchange of money for candy? Um, Was it, you know, had Emmett really been so bold as to ask the young backwoods beauty for a date? Did he really bid her an inappropriate farewell as he was being ushered out or even drug out of the store by an older cousin? Was there the wolf whistle to Carolyn Bryant from Emmett that enraged her so that she actually went to her vehicle to retrieve a pistol, which by the by, it wasn't even her car. It was her sister-in-law's car. Um, These are all details and stories that were kind of uttered amongst the masses that would lead to the end of the precocious kid. Now, many Southern newspapers would actually go forth and blame Emmett for his own death. In part, they would say, you know, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong actions. And there was a gentleman by the name of William Bradford Huey, who was a journalist and a novelist that would go on to publish a bit in 1956 following his death that basically depicted a black boy who all but committed suicide with his arrogance and brashness. So it was basically like, well, Emmett was boastful and he, he gave nasty responses to his assailants. And that's what ended up with him being dead. You know, if he had just taken his licks and shut up. Right. He might actually still be alive. No. So, I don't, I don't agree. I, (laughs) I think that when you take somebody from their home by gunpoint and you intend to fuck them up over rumors that, I mean, whatever the kids said for me, like that was a child. That's a 14 year old. I don't care if he was built like a man. I don't care if he looked like a man. As a grown adult, you couldn't look at him and see a boy. Right, but regardless of what he said, from my from what I'm gathering out of this, they didn't fucking care. It wouldn't have mattered. 
Mm-mm. what his age was. Yeah. So, and I don't think it would have mattered what he actually said Mm-mm. versus what people started to yeah. say he said or say he did. Um, so you say you are so. So you say you are so. Um, these these rumors in this story would be told and retold into society, and it was like Mississippi was starting to make excuses for the behaviors, and almost like they were they were making defensive remarks. As though, you know, like, we're not responsible for what happened to this kid. What he did led to these guys doing this. And that, I mean, at the end of the day, that's where, I don't know, the South was fucked up. So today we're going to be discussing the hard-hitting truths of the matter of Emmett Till's murder. Which, you know, what happened to him and how this would turn into a very large civil rights movement. One of the largest the country's ever seen. So, so the, what people don't know, like me, who didn't know this story, we get to go back and tell them now. Because some people were probably a little bit lost in that intro, because I was when I first started oh, reading sorry. it. I was like, I don't know what happened. So if anybody's with me there, here we go. <laughs> so the incident took place Wednesday, August 24th of 1955. Now, the boys would usually be attending services with Reverend Moses Wright, and those were held at the East Money Church of God in Christ. However, he had allowed the boys to skip the services and get a little bit of R&R because they'd been in the fields all day um, working the crops in the in the cotton fields. So his three sons, as well as his grandsons and Emmett, had been given a free pass. They didn't have to go to church that day. And since the summer was kind of winding down and the family was going to be separated for at least another school year, he had given them permission to borrow his 1941 Ford to go for a little bit of a cruise. Now, the reverend had told the bunch, don't don't go past the local corner store. And the boy that was driving was actually his son, mm. Maurice. He didn't have a license. So mm. I don't, I mean. How sticky were they about that in 1955, do you think? They probably cared a lot less than they care now. Right. However, um, they were told not to go past, past the corner store, which was like a mile up the road. So there were seven of them all together. There was an older boy that lived by, lived nearby. His name is Pete Parker. He was 19. And he had a young lady friend named Ruthie Mae Crawford, who was 18. And her uncle, his name was Roosevelt, and he was 15. Now, the youngest of the bunch were Simon and Emmett. Um, Simon actually belongs to the Reverend and Emmett, the nephew. And then Wheeler and Maurice are 16. Um Maurice and Simon are the Reverend's kids. Mm-hmm. So Wheeler, his grandson, and Emmett, his great nephew, and then three kids that just lived nearby. So they piled seven kids into a 1941 Ford sedan. Why wouldn't you? To go I for mean, a cruise. Look at their ages. What would you do? What would you do? <laughs> what would Angel do? Um, Angel would not put that many people in a vehicle, nor would I hand my vehicle to an unlicensed driver. No, if you you were one of the children, say the 14, 15-year-old, you would have been like, we can fit two more. Oh, shit. The amount of people we piled into my dad's (laughs) 1988 Lincoln town car when I was 16. So Maurice had actually delivered his parents, the reverend and his wife, to the church. And of course, as kids do... Like you do. Like you do. Like you do. They did not heed the advice of the reverend, and they drove a lot further than they were supposed to. And a lot further was only three miles away. 
<laughs> well, but still, when you're like, you only go to the corner and they go two miles past that. It's three like, miles. What yeah. The fuck? Three oh, miles. Three pa- miles. Three past. miles. They went three miles past that and they went to Brian's grocery. Now, this is the account of what took place with the youngsters per the book, The Blood of Emmett Till. Now, other accounts charge that there was an additional person, uh, cousin Curtis Jones, that was present for this as well. Mm -hmm. So, what is on, say, Wikipedia? And what is on a documentary? And what is in this book? They don't all have the same information, and they vary. Um, Another thing that I found is... Simon actually did a memoir later. And oh, what's really? in mm-hmm. Mamie wrote one. Simon, I don't know if they call him Simon or Simeon. That's what I was wondering. Because his name is spelled, him. it does have an E in it, but I'm going to say Simon. Anyway, there's different, different accounts by different people. Okay. So I'm going strictly based off of what's in the book. And I did add a little bit of information that I, I got out of a, a documentary. If the information was clashing i noted that so according to what jones said at the time the other boys reported that till had a photograph in his pocket okay or he had a a photo of an integrated class that he attended in chicago and this is supposedly untrue he also said that he was bragging to the boys about the white kids in the picture were his friends he also pointed to a white girl in the photo and referred to that girl as his girlfriend He also said that he had a photo in his wallet that was of a white woman and that that was his girlfriend and that he had been sexually active with her. That being said, after, you know, after the boys are like, oh, well, you go to an integrated school, you have a white girlfriend, you've been, you know, sexually adventurous with white women, they supposedly dared him to go into the store to talk to Carolyn Bryant. Now... So, okay, I'm just going to stop you. Okay. What we got from the last, from the first part. Right. Compared to this, mm-hmm. I'm not fucking buying it. Right. I don't personally know him, did not personally know him or his friends or anybody, but from what we got there compared to here, I just don't see that happening. So, there's a lot of back and forth that I cover in here. The there, there was also a personal account of the incident in a book that was released in 2009, and that was the memoir written by his cousin, Simon Wright. And he disputes what Jones said in the, he had a picture of an integrated class, and he had a picture of a white woman in his wallet, and had claimed or been boastful about being sexually active with white women, okay? okay. So Simon came, came back, and he disputed that. He said... Um, Till did not have a photo of a white woman in his wallet and no one dared him to flirt with Miss Bryant. He said in a 2015 interview, we didn't dare him to go into the store. Um, that was what the white folks had said. That was their version of the story. Okay. Um, it also went forward that they said he had pictures of the white girlfriend, but Simon says there were no photos. Wait, another, I have another thought. Okay. Don't you think his mom, so his mom gave him all of the, you know, how to be, how to act, what to do while you're down there. So why, don't you think that she would strongly caution him not to talk about his integrated school? And if he did have a white girlfriend, not to talk about it? He didn't go to an integrated school, first and foremost. No, he did not. But it does address the photo. She does address that. 
So Simon said that nobody had actually interviewed him. And the FBI had completed notes in 2006 where he claims that there was not a photograph. And Curtis Jones, who had made the initial statement, went and recanted his statements. And then prior to his death, he actually went and apologized to Emmett's mother, Mamie, and said, I'm sorry for saying all those untrue things. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Now, back at the ranch, they had arrived and gathered in front of the market, and they had been in search of colas and candy as a refreshment, and they weren't in any kind of a rush, like the reverend and the wife are at church, they're going to be at a service for a minute, so they were just going to hang out, get a Coke, get some candy, shoot the shit, right? Right. Now, it wasn't uncommon for the locals, and that's in quotation marks, finger quotes, quotes, locals, to gather in front of the store where they would sit and gossip, play checkers, and congregate for a bit to cool off. Now, a courtesy word was locals, and that was a term used for many years following the death of Emmett Till. Now, at the current time in 1955, if you were in polite company, the term that would have been used was Negroes, okay? Okay. If you were in impolite company, you know what word was used and... Uh I don't need to repeat it. Now, the store was able to get by during slow times because of the locals, because they came there almost daily and patronized Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market. So during this gathering, Emmett had possibly claimed that he attended the school with the white girls and even claimed to have dated a white girl as well. One of his cousins with him said that he produced that photo, and that would have been Curtis Jones, and that he bragged that that was his girlfriend that he had been sexually active with 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 my mouth doesn't want to work he was with her he was with so later his mother mamie would say that that photograph was actually a stock photo in the wallet when he bought it Hmm. and it was actually a photo of a young movie star named uh hedy lamar hedy lamar so which I find it to be a little bit funny, and here's why. Because this actually reminds me of something my cousins and everybody would do. Like, hey, check out this hottie McCott pants. That To me, that feels like something that young men at 14 would do now. You know right. what I mean? It's kind of like when people are like, oh, check out my model girlfriend. And then you do like a Google search image and for hot model girl- girlfriend, and it's all the photos they use. That was something that Mamie did address. She was like, that was a stock photo. If you found one in the wallet, if he if he did those things at all, which, you know, Curtis went back later and said, I'm sorry, I said those untrue things. She said if he did have that photo, it was a stock photo in the wallet when he purchased it. Good hell. So... Mamie may have been trying to shed a little bit of light on it or even defend her son, Mm -hmm. you know, at at that point, which she may have been trying trying to squash any inkling of an idea that he had interest in white women, which, fuck, if he did, he did. If he didn't, he didn't. Right. But But, back then, it wasn't okay. She was trying to, you know, cover, not cover, that's, that's poor verbiage, but she was trying to be like, you know... That was a stock photo. That wasn't something that they actually like went and sought out. You know what I mean? Um, none of the witnesses that were present, other than what Curtis Jones said, ever had details of the photo or had talked about the school class or the integrated class. So those were details that were most likely fabricated. And they were probably said 
not probably, they were said by Curtis Jones and then people that wanted this to be Emmett's fault in town would repeat them. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, it would be suggested that an unidentified boy, none of the boys that were in the car with them, that would suggest he went into Brian's grocery to at least sneak a peek at Carolyn Bryant, okay? Since she was the prettiest woman in all of money. Right. Wheeler Jr. had later reported that none of the boys had actually, like, dared him to go in there, but they were like, there's a really pretty woman there if you want to go see her. So that turns in daring him to go or like telling him to go look at her turns into the him daring. Right. Whatever. What the fuck ever. This irritates me. I know. (laughs) And it's, it's, it's difficult because like I said, there's, there's so many different accounts from different people and this happened so long ago that at this particular juncture, we just have to go by whatever's out there. You know what I mean? Um, I'm not going to trust a goddamn word that comes out of Carolyn Bryan's memoir. But I do want to read it. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I want to so, fucking know what she has to say. Emmett had gone in, like, he'd gone in with the intent to purchase bubblegum, okay? So Wheeler had gone in with him, Wheeler Jr. He made his purchase and bounced, and he left Emmett behind to make his. Now, Simon, the younger cousin, would go on to say that Emmett was in the store for, like, less than a minute. Now, there's varying accounts on how long he was in there, but nobody... Not a single individual said that he was in there longer than a few minutes. Mm-hmm. So Emmett was in there for less than a minute to a s- several minutes. And if he said anything, I don't know. But what did he say? We'll never. <laughs> Guess what? Nobody knows. There wasn't security footage. What? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Roll that beautiful bean bo- bean footage. Nope, none. <laughs> So the only people that do know exactly what happened are Carolyn and Emmett. One's gone forever, and the other one is drifting towards the grave with every minute that ticks on the clock. And so, hasn't told a straight story. Right? I mean, she, I think she's 85 or 86 this year. So mm-hmm. realistically, what, what might be floating around that woman's brain is muck. Mm-hmm. So what we do know is that Carolyn, later on September 2nd in 1955 would initially go on and tell her lawyer that she waited on Emmett and that when she reached for payment on his purchase, he grabbed her hand. She, she claims, okay, after, after the murder, September 2nd, that he grabbed her by the hand and said, hey, baby, how about a date? She then told the lawyer that when she walked away, Emmett would come up to her and, like, take her by the waist and say, what's the matter, baby? Can't you take it? She would go on to further claim that as she was, he was headed out the door, that he would bid her goodbye, which at the, you know, for 1955 in Mississippi, as a black person, you don't say goodbye to a white person. Like, that's inappropriate. Yeah. And why would you? Why would you be courteous? Jesus. Now, at (laughs) at the time, she states that she was headed to the car to get the pistol from under the seat. And this is when the infamous wolf whistle would take place. Now, Carolyn charges that this all took place when she, at, like, after she had the pistol, and that when Emmett spotted the weapon, he stopped and nothing further took place. Or now, it's all a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> now, from the previous episode, do you know what's missing from Carolyn's account of that day? Hmm. <laughs> Nikki. He grabbed her on the waist. Yep. So she actually admitted that that part wasn't true. So he never 
Miss Bryant admitted that her testimony of Emmett Till, that he had grabbed her around the waist and said those things to her, was not true. She said that to Mr. Tyson, which is pretty crucial in the grand scheme of things because, you know, three weeks later, in a court of law, under fucking oath, she would testify otherwise. Weird. Yeesh. After being interviewed, the sheriff of LaFour County, his name is George Smith, he would go on to tell Greenwood Morning Star, which was the local newspaper publication, on September 1st that the Bryants had been offended by Emmett Till when he waved and said goodbye as he departed out of the store on a Saturday night. What an asshole. I know. However, it was actually a Wednesday night when this all went down. It wasn't a Saturday. So the the days and the timeline are all fucked up from like nine ways from that wednesday those rich ass white folks get don't know their days they don't so two days later sheriff smith would go on to add to his original statement and he would say that emmett made ugly remarks to mrs bryant additional reports were riddled with accusations of emmett being insolent you know being disrespectful not using yes ma'am when addressing her looking her in the eyes now ruthie may Crawford. She was the the little 18-year-old local girl that rode rode with him, okay? She had told a documentarian, Keith Beauchamp, later, many years later, that the only mistake that she saw through the glass, like the front glass of the store, was that Emmett placed the money directly into Carolyn's hands instead of putting it on the counter. Right. On a Saturday night, he... Yeah. Which turned it, on that Saturday night, turned it into him grabbing her hand. Apparently. So why was her hand out? I have no idea. Please tell me if that was the clearly if, she was reaching for the fucking money. If he put it in her hand, if it was custom for you to place your cash and currency on the countertop, why would you put your hand out? Like, wouldn't you wait for the wouldn't you wait for the money to be on the counter? Right? Did he wait for her her hand to come out and grab it? And be like, take my money, bitch. I have no idea. No, because I'm sure the other kids would have seen him do that. So that was the only. That was the only flub up that she said she saw. Now, which in Mississippi at the time was not okay between the races. Um, The other thing was even looking Miss Bryant directly into the eyes was a violation of racial etiquette. And that may have been something that she missed was that he was looking at her directly in the face when he didn't avert his glance to the fucking floor. Jesus. Now, this apparently was enough to send Simon racing in there to grab Emmett because they knew in Mississippi, like, holy fuck, like not only did he address her, he put the money right into her hand and he's looking at her in the eye. Simon ran in there and grabbed him. So in 2005, I know that there's a lot of back and forth and keeping up with me right now is Dean Amite, fucking squirrels everywhere. So what you need to do right now, just grab your marker. Make a web on a dry erase board. <laughs> Meet me in the middle. So it'll, it'll all come together at some point. Right. So in 2005, Simon would actually verify Ruthie May's statement that the only thing they saw inappropriate was the exchange of money from hand to hand. Now, less than a minute, couple of minutes what could have possibly had her so enraged that she went to the car to get the gun? Maurice and the group scattered after this, okay? So well. they they did watch her go for the gun. And how, so here's my thought. How odd would it be if a person, okay, she said that he all but sexually assaulted her, okay? That it was all but fucking attempted rape. Now, 
that if he had grabbed her by the waist and like followed her around the store and said these ugly things to her, how odd would it seem to anybody else that she would head out of the store right into a group of young men? Correct. By herself. Right. Okay. To, to fetch a weapon when it would have been equally as easy just to shut and lock the door. Right. Okay. If she was that afraid of all of, of, of any of that. Right. Why walk into the whole group of them? Right. Hmm. So. Because the was, gun's past them. That's why. I, I, I had to do what I had to do. I have no To idea. get to my gun. Clearly. Uh, Wheeler Jr. was the one that. <laughs> he saw Carolyn come like boot scooting out of the store. And he's like, she's going to get a fucking gun. And sure as shit, he was correct because she whipped out that 45 automatic from under the seat that belonged to her husband, Roy. Now, they had all kind of agreed that Emmett did, in fact, let the whistle go. Right. This is the part that gets me like, what kind of whistle was it? I want to know. (laughs) Wolf whistle. You done fucked up. Now... (laughs) (laughs) the carolyn bryant says he did whistle his cousins even simon said he whistled so everybody agreed okay to this day that he did let the wolf whistle loose okay now what possessed him to whistle at a white woman in mississippi nobody knows because even his cousins were like we have no idea what the hell he was thinking so he they you know they, there were claims that he was dared. Nobody dared him to do it. He did it on his own. Why? Nobody knows. No. And, like, there's so many scenarios that go through my mind. Like, did he think it was a compliment? But no, he's been warned enough about how it is in, in Mississippi. Right. In this time. Right. Not to fucking whistle. No Don't matter play. who she is. Don't play. Do not do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. No. So... One of the things that was brought up by his cousin was he said, I think he wanted to get a laugh out of us because he was always joking around. And sometimes it was hard to tell when he was being serious. And he said that following the whistle, everybody was like, oh, crap. And said, well, it scared us half to death because we're almost in shock. We couldn't get out of there fast enough because... We'd never seen anything like that before. We grew up where the Ku Klux Klan and the Knight Riders were a daily part mm-hmm. of our lives. And we knew what that could entail. That just gave me the chills. I know. Now, following his disappearance, a newspaper account would go forth to say that Till sometimes alleviated his stuttering by whistling. And yeah. his mother, Mamie, said that his speech was very unclear and he had very uh, particular difficulty with the word B. Now, he started to whistle to overcome that. Like, if you whistle before you say the word, then you're kind of gearing up for it. And so, if he was asking for bubblegum, maybe he whistled prior to saying the word bubblegum so he didn't stutter. And she said that she had taught him to do that to help him with his articulation. And that often he would whistle softly to help pronounce, like help pronouncing his words. So here's the deal, though. He whistled on the outside of the store after he left. And, you know, at that point, you're not enunciating your words. You're not trying to stifle your stammer. You let a whistle go. So and my thinking about it, a 14 year old kid. Okay, whistles, dude. 
even now, like I know that there's videos on YouTube where a woman walks around, say New York or LA, and it's like being catcalled in the city and women don't like that. Okay, here, it, you know what? Use it as a, a, a learning experience for other people. If you don't want to be whistled at, because when I get whistled at, I'm like, hey, thanks. But that's I don't me. look. I'm like, what if I look and it's not for me and then I look like an asshole? I, I'm like, whatever. <laughs> oh, I don't know what to do with my hands. If somebody whistles at me or says, hey, good looking, I'm like, hey, thanks. But that's just me. If you get whistled at and you don't like it, turn around and say, you know, if... If all you know how to do is whistle, another thing that you could learn to do is say, excuse me, you look very nice. And that's equally as... My eyes are right here. I'm just saying. (laughs) But 14-year-old kids whistle at women now. 14-year-old kids back then whistled at women. Clearly not okay. But as a 14-year-old kid, all right? What if he was just like... Because he was trying to, to... You know what I mean? I'm trying to make this where he didn't really do it because I don't like it. I know. But kids are kids. And I realize that kids do things trying to be funny or silly or whatever. But the fact remains that he did whistle when she was outside to get the gun. Now, Simon would say that they all stopped dead in their tracks, turned around and looked at him just completely flabbergasted what the fuck did you just yeah because they realized that he had just crossed a long-standing line between the races and they were like oh my god we're in danger so they all kind of looked at each other with the same fear and they were like get the fuck out of dodge so it was almost like somebody struck him with lightning and they all bailed to the car okay Mm -hmm. now once they get in the vehicle they're like on the way out of town, okay? And they were like, oh, well, we're not being chased. Nobody's coming with, you know, torches and pitchforks. And they were like, okay, a little bit of relief. You know, that sense of like... (sighs) All right, like when you're going up the stairs and you think there's something behind you. Oh, yeah. There really wasn't. You're good. You're good. Now, (laughs) they all felt that until they saw some headlights behind them. Fuck. And the paranoia hits and they're like, shit, shit, shit. They pulled over and they all scattered in different different directions headed for the fields to hide because like once you get in the field you can hide and ain't nobody gonna get you well the car whizzes past headlights attached to a vehicle go right past and they're like ha 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 (sighs) yeah and at that point they're kind of giggling at their nerves and they're like okay well maybe this wasn't as serious as we thought it was you know and so maybe she didn't hear right like maybe it just wasn't that serious you know maybe we're all blowing this out of proportion so they're on their way back to get Uncle Moses Wright and everybody from church. And Emmett had started to beg everybody, like, don't don't tell about the whistle. Like, don't talk about what had happened. Pretend like that never happened. Yeah, all of that in, in the history of things that didn't happen, that didn't happen the, the most. most. Okay. Well, unfortunately, they didn't have to tell because... Somebody else did. Everybody already knew. Now, they were not the only locals out in front of the store. And there were several places under covered porches near there where other people were sitting playing checkers or having a drink or whatever. I can just see, like, the whole town shutting down being like, damn! Right? Like on Friday. (laughs) Damn! His Aunt Elizabeth had already been told about what happened. Oh, fuck. And Uncle Moses was told soon thereafter. 
And who spread the word? It Not that it matters, but it's completely unknown. But it caught on like a house on fucking fire. Mm-hmm. And it was like the very next day, a neighbor girl came to tell Simon that trouble was brewing. Okay. And the little girl says, I know the Bryants. They're not going to forget what happened. You've been warned. Oh, fuck. Sunday, August 28th, 1955. Reverend Moses was pulled from a deep sleep by the sound of boots on his front porch. Now, the reverend was a sharecropper in his 64th year, okay? And people called him preacher. Very short, wiry man. He'd lived in the Delta all of his days, and he had never had a problem with white folks or had any kind of run-ins until this day, okay? So Moses and his family lived in one of the nicer tenant homes on the G.C. Frederick Plantation. Now, some would refer to this as a shack, but it was an old home and it was fair. Reverend Wright was respected by Mr. Frederick, who lived in the big house, um, and he had lived in the Reverend's home before he built the big house. So this home was a four-bedroom home, screened front porch around the entire front. There were two doors that opened up into two front bedrooms and then two smaller bedrooms stacked out back. Now, what happened this early morning might vary per account or documentary, but only slightly because this account was told by Simon, who was present for all of this, as well as Reverend Wright during the trial that we'll get into on part three. So Simon says, well, (coughs) what happens is loud, booming voice, preacher. And he comes fucking shooting up in his bed. So another voice of another white man would announce, this is Mr. Bryant. We want to talk to the boy. The boy from Chicago what done all the smart talking up in money. Jesus. Did you like my accent? I did. Okay. I liked it. Now, jump back to Carolyn Bryant's testimony. Okay? Just real Mm -hmm. quick. If there had been any assault of a sexual or physical nature, would it have really gone unsaid by Roy or JW when they announced themselves because they said when they went to the reverend's house, we want the boy from Chicago what done the talking. Talking. They didn't even say the whistle. If there had been actual physical or sexual assault, wouldn't wouldn't they have said, like, I want the I want the I want the kid from Chicago that grabbed my wife. I want you know what I mean? But they didn't. All they wanted was the kid from Chicago that did all the smart talk. That done. That done all the smart talk up in money. Okay. Now, there were eight people inside this house that were facing mortal danger. Okay. So there was Moses and his wife, Elizabeth. There's their three sons, Simon, Maurice, and Robert, as well as the three boys from Chicago. So they had Wheeler Jr. and Curtis Jones, his grandsons, and Emmett, his nephew. Okay. Now the Reverend had caught wind of the story, and so few details had actually made it back to the Reverend. Like he had the he had the fluffy version of like, well, this went down. But it was so overplayed that he really didn't think that there were going to be consequences to follow. If he really believed that this kind of shit was going to go down based on the the story he was told, he'd have had his grandsons and his nephew on a fucking train to Chicago that same day. Like, they'd have been gone. Okay. Um, So, the reverend gets up and he thought about getting his shotgun from the closet. And he was like, fuck. And instead, he grabbed his overalls and put his work boots on and, like, prepared to step outside. Okay. 
Now, he before he opens the doors, he says, who is it? And he knows there's trouble on the fucking porch, right? Like, mm-hmm. it goes without saying. He knows what's coming. So, the Reverend had actually been trying to stall for time. And so, Emmett was in the back of the house, in the back bedrooms. And he knew that if he could get Emmett out of the house and into the cotton fields, he could simply just tell the kid, or tell the kid, he could simply tell the guys on the front porch, look, I sent him back north. Because they could come in the house, look, and they, there wouldn't be anybody for them to take. Right. Easy peasy. Well, they could have, I don't know. When we get through this, I'm going to come back to that statement because I feel like they could have lied and said Emmett wasn't there. However. Where is he going to hide? But they didn't know what he looked like. Oh. Now, Aunt Elizabeth had acted quickly and headed for the back bedrooms where the kids were sleeping. The Reverend had pretty much, he heard his wife not not see because it was complete darkness in the house, but he heard his wife scamper off to go get the boys up. Now, Simon and his beloved cousin, Emmett, were asleep in one bed, Robert on the sa- in the same room in another bed. Now, Curtis stayed in the back room um, by himself, and then Wheeler and Maurice were in a shared bed as well. Elizabeth had told reporters that they knew a mob had come for Emmett, and she only knew that she had one thing to accomplish, and she didn't have time to talk about it. And so... When she got up, she knew that her only duty was to get to Emmett and get him out of the house into the fields. When she heard the men on the porch, she ran to the room that he was in. Now, Elizabeth is frantically trying to get Emmett up and awake because this is all going down at like 2, 2.30 in the morning. Okay, Right. Well, I mean, what other time is it going to happen? Right. Jesus. So she's, she, you know, she's back there trying to get him up and start moving. And Moses is on the on the front porch and he's attempting to stall out and give him some time to get dressed and get out. Now where the white men had been waiting, Moses came out and he shut the door behind him. So he was trying to put as many barriers between Between. them and him as possible. So he comes out and there stands six foot to 250 pounds of JW big boy Millum. And there was another one shortly behind him and he he knew straight away the bald guy was JW. You know, he was mm-hmm. widely known throughout the community. So he said, Moses would actually go on to say that I would know him if I saw him in Texas. Now, in one hand of JW was a big heavy flashlight. In the other hand was a 45 automatic U.S. Army issue pistol. Now, Moses didn't recognize the man that was shortly behind him. And this was a, a shorter, leaner man, about 190 pounds, still six feet tall carried a 45 army issue and that would be mr bryant so he comes out and he's like you know what can i do for you and they're demanding to speak with the smart talking kid from chicago so they push past the reverend and he said that when they did so he could smell the liquor on him like they had been pouring whiskey down their throats for days okay And now 2 a.m. is the right time to go take care of a problem. When we are how many barrels deep? Barrels deep of shitty corn whiskey. This is when this is now it's time to act. So there was a third man present who stayed back in the shadows and kept his uh, head hung very low. Now, Reverend Wright said that he assumed this was a black man because he, finger quotes, acted like a colored man. He said that he stayed back in the shadows, he didn't speak, and he kept his head down. Um, 
He said that this was likely a man that had been working for Millam. And Reverend, the Reverend did go on to say that he could have been wrong about this and it could have been a friend of the Millam Bryant clan. Right. Um, it was, it was rumored that a couple of their friends could have, it could have been them instead, Mr. Kimball or Mr. Clark. Um, it also could have been their brother-in-law, Melvin. And he, we talked about Melvin in the right. last episode about him pistol whipping the gentleman out front of the variety store. But don't you think if it was him, he would have been all up in that shit? You would have, you would think. Now, there was, there were obviously other men present. Who were they? We don't know. Um, so Millam busts into the door and Moses kind of, you know, he's trying to hold the door and he's trying to be all slow to the bedrooms and JW's kicking the doors in. So he goes into the room where the two 16 year olds are. And the kids said that this was like the most terrifying situation that they'd ever been in because they're in this pitch black room. You can't see anything. All you know is there's a flashlight sweeping the room. Uh, you can smell whiskey and sweat and you're seeing guns and white men and they're demanding, you know, the Chicago boy. So this would be scary as shit for anybody, let alone two 16-year-old black kids in the middle of the night. So Millam and Bryant were like, turn the lights on, okay? And the Reverend turns around and he's trying to further delay and he's like, hey, the lights don't work. Some of them are broken. So the two drunken men continue to sweep from room to room and they've got the flashlights and they're asking for the boy from Chicago. Now, they knew, like Millam and Bryant both knew that the Reverend had been stalling for time. And they finally marched into the back room where Elizabeth was and she hadn't had a chance to get Emmett dressed and out, okay? So they shine the flashlight. Yeah. Why do you need to be dressed? Just bounce the fuck out. I don't know, man. It's the middle of summer in Mississippi. You know what's hot as shit. Get the fuck out. You at least got underwear on. Get the fuck out. I don't even give a shit if your dick's swinging. Get the fuck out. Right. Like at this particular juncture, nothing good happens in the hands of a white people. Remember we talked about that? Yeah. So... They get the flashlight in his face, okay? And they're like, are you the one, the one that done all the smart talking up at money? And it was Big Boy asking Emmett. And he looked at him. He says, yeah. Oh, Lord. <laughs> say no. If somebody asks you if you are a god, say no. <laughs> That's kind of backwards, but whatever. Gotcha. So, Millam is standing over this old metal framed bed where Simon and Emmett are sleeping. And Simon's like frozen behind him, just can't even move. And, you know, Emmett looks up at him. He goes, yeah. And let's let's just go ahead and take a small pause. Now, either the kid wasn't awake yet, obviously, or he had balls of solid rock. Because <sighs> what came next would have me shitting myself because he looks at Emmett. He goes... Well, that was my sister-in-law, and I won't stand for it. And don't you say yeah to me, or I'll blow your head off. And he's got a fucking pistol in his hand. Right. Okay. Now, he instructs Emmett to get his clothes on, and he turns to Simon, and he says, close your eyes and go back to sleep. Yeah. Go. Just, shh. Calm down. Close your eyes. Just sleep. Just we, lay down. We got this handled. We got, we got what we came here for. Yeah. You just chill the Just go out. back to sleep. Now... Emmett would go on. He pulls on a white t-shirt and a dark pair of trousers and his loafers. Aunt Elizabeth starts to beg Roy and, and JW, okay? She's like, I've got money, okay? And I'll give you every penny I have if you just leave him here. Now, 
The other boys in the house said that they thought that Roy Bryant would have accepted the bribe if J.W. hadn't been present. Because it was J.W. that turned around and looks at Elizabeth and says, Woman, get back in that bed. I want to hear springs squeak. Oh. And Roy kind of apparently stood there like, hmm, how much you got? So I think, now, remember, Roy was also the only one to take care of the black gentleman that got pistol whipped Mm -hmm. and then gave him a ride home. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I, I think that he probably acted a lot on JW wanting to go and do not Roy Bryant trying to defend the honor of his pretty little wife. I think a lot of it had to do with his half brother was like, fuck that. We're going to get, let's go fuck some shit up. Right now. Give me a slight reason, a partial reason. I don't even give a fuck if it's a real reason. Let's go. (laughs) I'm sorry. Did you fart sideways into the wind? Get that son of a bitch. (laughs) That's kind of how I envision it. Like what the fuck, man? So, at this point, with all the dignity that he can put together, the reverend is like, listen, the boy suffered polio. He hasn't been quite right ever since. Like, he, he's got a child's mind. He's got a stutter. You know, how about you just, you know, take the boy and whip him really good? He's only 14. Just take him out back and thrash him and let him back to us. That, was, right. his, that was his suggestion, you know? Now, J.W. turns around and he's like, preacher, how old are you? And the reverend says, I'm 64. And Millam gets up in his face and says, you make any trouble and you won't see 65. Mm. So during all of this with loaded pistols and shit, the reverend is like, just take him and whip him, thrash him, go out back and thrash him, but leave him here. Okay. Yeah. That doesn't happen. Now, JW grabs Emmett and drags a half sleepy kid out to a truck or... It could have been a truck. It could have been a sedan. It's dark and it's just past this like grove of trees. Okay. Yeah. Now there's a light on in the vehicle cab. And when they drag Emmett over there, Moses said that he thought them say, like thought he heard them say, is this the boy? And another voice that was in the darkness said, yes. I don't like it. That gave me chills a little bit. So Moses would later go on to speculate that this voice belonged to Carolyn Bryant and that she had been brought along to confirm the identity of the smart mouth Chicago kid because J.W. and Roy would not know what he looked like. And there's a house full of kids. So how are you going to get the right one? They this goes back to the thing where they so they brought somebody to confirm the identity of the kid, supposedly. But how easy would it have been? Would it have been easy? I don't know. To say, I already sent him back. This is, these three are my sons and these three are my grandsons. Right. And, and said his name was something else. Okay. Now, would it have been easy to, to pull that off? I don't know because you've got a 14-year-old kid that's just been woken up from a dead sleep. And they're like, I want the smart mouth from Chicago. And you're looking at this kid like, Ain't nobody here from Chicago. Nobody. This here, this kid here. um, Is definitely not from Chicago. He's from Texas. Like, yeah. So I don't know. Like, could you have gotten away with it? Because Moses said that they brought somebody to identify him. Right. And, but she wasn't in the house. If it was her, she wasn't in the house. So 
if they hadn't panicked, but you know, they panicked, so they knew right. who they were coming here for. So they probably didn't think that through until afterwards. Afterwards, they were probably like, they don't fucking know who he they, is. That we could have hit him. And yeah, they would have never known. Now, did it all happen so fast? That they didn't right. have the opportunity to, I mean, it's kind of, it's the coulda, shoulda, woulda game. You know right. what I mean? So at the end of the day, did they really have enough time? Because as much as Reverend Wright tried to stall them out, everything happened that quick. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, so this would actually make Carolyn an accessory to murder. Mm-hmm. And because the Reverend couldn't be sure that it was Carolyn, um, and he, he honestly, he... This is the thing that really bothers me because J.W., Roy, and Carolyn were so fucking dishonest and the Reverend was aces through everything in the trial and his testimony. He said, I can't be sure that it was her. It was dark. And I'm not certain it was a woman's voice because it was so far away. Right. It could have been. Maybe it wasn't. Yeah, a a man whispering could be the same any yeah any when you when you whisper i like to whisper too but you have no idea so it was dark enough out there and they had the headlights off that he couldn't say whether or not it was a truck or a sedan but the reverend was honest through all of his testimony and the people who didn't need to lie seriously at the at the end of the day in 19 fucking 55 you didn't need to lie bitch but you did right okay so they hear the voice say yes which was basically green light they grab this kid they throw him in there and off they go so moses said that he stood in the yard for quite some time just staring off in the direction that the vehicle went because at this particular juncture juncture that he's like they have my nephew they've been drinking they have weapons like they know what happens to kids black kids in mississippi when this shit goes down right Now, shortly after Emmett had been taken by Bryant and Millam, Elizabeth, his aunt, had dashed off to the white neighbors to get help. Anything, something, okay? So it's close to or just past 3 a.m. and it's still pitch black outside. So Elizabeth had gone begging for help from the farmer and their wife. Now the wife was wanting to help, but the farmer wouldn't give his wife permission and wouldn't consent. So they kept the door shut and she wasn't allowed to use their phone or anything. She said that it could have been the wailings of an old black woman talking about her family being taken by white men with guns that scared the farmers. And they were like, hell no, like we don't want to get involved with this. Or it could have been like she wasn't explaining herself in her frantic state. This is what this was her statement, you know. So but, you know, in her frantic state, was she just blurting out? you know white men took my kid my nephew blah 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 blah, blah yeah. in the middle of the night and they're like i have no idea what this person is screeching about i don't know what you're doing but you need to do it out there you need to not do it here she said that she's you know she's in like she's in tears she's totally distraught she ends up going home <clears throat> with no help okay she walks through the door and she looks at the reverend and she's like i'm leaving and i'm not ever coming back she's like i'm kicking fucking rocks out of mississippi like fuck this fuck this place fuck them Mm -hmm. i'm out she actually did leave she left her sons and the other boys and her husband she went north to a place called sumner okay she was like she told moses her husband she was like put me in the car 
I want out. Like, I want away from here. Elizabeth had Moses drive her to her brother's home north in Sumner. She left the five remaining boys, um, and she went to stay with Crosby Smith, her brother. Now, she sent a letter to her husband that was dated August 30th, which was two days following the kidnapping, okay? Mm-hmm. She told Moses to join her north. She said, bring my corsets, my slips, my dresses, and my stockings. She's... Sorry, I laugh, but she's like, bring my shit, because I'm not coming back. Nope. She she was done. But I ain't coming back. She said, you know, gather my things, bring them, but you come too. Like, that was how she ended it, was basically, you come too. You're she, staying when you bring my stockings. She never did go back to that house. I fucking wouldn't either. Fuck that. On the way back, after leaving Elizabeth, um, he picked up his his brother-in-law, Crosby, and they went back to Mississippi um, in an attempt to retrieve Emmett, okay? Now, this is the same day that that Emmett was abducted, okay? Now, him and Crosby go back, and they are going to go confront the men directly and ask for Emmett if he were still living, like we want him back. Now, getting face-to-face with the men who threatened his life and had possibly taken the life of Emmett, was, that's a pretty, pretty tall order. You know what I mean? Yeah. To go and confront two white men and be like, can I please have my nephew back? That one's mine right there. I'll need that back, thanks. Yeah, I'll take it back. Right. We'll pretend like nothing ever happened. That's the shitty part, is he had to find the fortitude to look two men in the face and be like, just take him outside and beat him. Mm-mm. that'll be good enough just thrash him but leave him here Ugh. and now he's got to go face these two white men and say i don't know what you've done with him but if he's living can i have him back could you imagine saying that if he's living I, can i have him back i don't think i could muster words out of my mouth Mm-mm. if that were the case like oh, hell no so <clears throat> the reverend and crosby go to the back door of brian's grocery okay and they knock and nobody comes to the door, okay? And at this point, you've got two black men in the wee, wee early morning hours, and they're knocking on the back door of a white man's house. So they don't know what they're going to get, a strap, a shotgun, God knows. Well, right. nobody answers the door. So um, they had been a lot more respectful when they approached the back door of the Bryant Grocery, um, a lot less aggressively than what had just taken place an hour or so or several hours earlier at his right. own home. Mm-hmm. Now, apparently by this time, it's like four or five in the morning when they knocked and didn't get an answer. Wright and Smith would then return to the Rev- Reverend's house, and they were waiting for daylight to continue on. <clears throat> so they were waiting for the sun to come up so they could continue on with their day. Now, Carolyn Bryant had actually heard that knock. She had been home alone with her kids, and she didn't answer because who the fuck would knock at your back door at that time? And she's home alone with her two kids. So oh, where's your shit stirring stick now? I know. Fuck. Fucking. Where's your fucking 45 now, you tough ass? Like, right. uh, suddenly somebody knocks on the back door of your house and you're all fucking I'm a victim. Timid, Save me. Yeah, timid housewife with babies at home. Bitch, you weren't all that. No. A couple hours earlier in the day. I'm just saying whatever. Just, just saying. Just saying. Now, Carolyn said that she was afraid for the life of her and her children, so she didn't answer that knock. And they left. Now, Curtis Jones, the cousin, would the one that made the 
recanted statement about mm-hmm. the photo in Emmett's wallet. Now, he would be the one to relay the news back to Chicago. He called oh, his God. mother. Yes. So, he called his mother. We had gone to the neighbor's house, borrowed their phone, called his mother, Willie May, said that men had come with guns and they took Emmett. And at this point, it's like nine o'clock in the morning and Willie May, in turn, has to go tell Mamie. <clears throat> so, she goes and says that in the middle of the night, Emmett was taken by these white men and he's been gone for several hours. Now, Mamie, in a fucking fit of panic and fear, runs to her mom's, races to Alma's house. And it was there that she began calling Chicago newspapers, reporters, anybody to have them sent to Alma's house, okay? Mm-hmm. So there were all black publications in Chicago, okay? Not so much down south, but right. at this point, she's like, fuck, the only people I know that are gonna help me are here. So she calls everybody. Now, in five, 1955, there was a very distinct line of what could and could not be done, if anything, okay? When, right. it, when it comes to the abduction of a black kid. Now, Mamie was full of, like, she was full aware that nobody in Mississippi was gonna fucking help her, okay? Oh, hell no. Nobody was gonna help her. Like, oh, you're, you're, I'm, I'm, your black son was abducted in the middle of the night by two drunk white guys with pistols? Sorry about your luck. We'll we'll, uh, get back to you on that. Right. The only thing that she could really think of, because she knew that the law wasn't going to be on her side there, was to do it in Chicago. So she sends out for the press, specifically the black newspapers and the magazines in Chicago. She also contacted a distant relative who was very savvy in black politics in Chicago and would make him basically her advisor in how to act. Not act as behaviors, but like, what steps do I take now to... Yeah, like a coach. Yeah, to collect my kid. Mm-hmm. Um, his name was Rayfield Moody and was leading the charge over everything and maybe had every confidence in him because, you know, he was well-versed, well-known black man in Chicago. Moses Wright had accompanied his brother-in-law Crosby and they, in Mississippi, had gone to Sheriff Smith to report Emmett Till's finger quote disappearance okay motherfucker he's not a set of car keys he didn't disappear you didn't lose him no. it's like whoops where'd he go no 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 motherfucker he was Whoop, taken where'd he go? <laughs> Whoop, where'd he go <laughs> he was taken so they go to the sheriff for his disappearance now sheriff george smith of lafleur county knew the millen bryant bunch and he'd already assumed that the boy was dead mm-hmm. and that he'd been tossed in the river here's the fucked up shit he didn't go looking to speak with J.W. and Roy right away. Instead, they drove around and looked for Emmett under bridges where debris collects, okay? Oh, fuck. Right? Now, so the sheriff already expected Emmett to be dead, and here's Moses and his brother-in-law, Crosby, and they're still clinging to a sliver of hope that Emmett's alive, okay? And the sheriff's like, now nah, let's go check under some bridges. We're going to go find the body. Right. Moses went with the sheriff, and Crosby and another deputy from LaFleur had gone. Now, there's four guys, okay? So, you've got two white lawmen and two black gentlemen and its family that are looking for him. Now, the sheriff would say it was commonplace for bodies to be recovered there. What's done around here, 
that usually gets done to them, this is where we find them. Oh, Like, God. just all nonchalant, totally no emergent situation, you know, we around these parts. here. Yeah, around these parts. When God. what happens, happens to them, this is where we find them. Okay. At this particular juncture, the sheriff was pretty... Um, <laughs> He was a little too comfortable with lynchings in Mississippi, okay? They found nothing, all right? So the afternoon wears on into like the 2, 3 p.m. hours. The men had called off the called off the search because they weren't finding anything. And that's when the sheriff's like, well, shit, I guess I'll go talk to Roy and JW. Oh, now that we didn't find him under the bridge. Right. So we, oh, shit, nobody. I guess I'll go talk to the guys that took him. Maybe we can find out where they tossed him. That's probably what he was thinking. I know I'm that sure. sounds heartless, but damn. Well, it's not like this guy had a whole lot of tact no. in anything. So he <clears throat> calls off the search and he returns um, the Reverend and Crosby back to town and they go back to the Reverend's house. The sheriff goes off to talk to JW and, and Roy. Now, when Moses and Crosby get back to his home, they're, I mean, at this point, it's 2 p.m. The town is fucking buzzing, okay? Everybody knows, especially black folks, okay? Of course. Um, people had come to pay their respects, offer comfort. You know, the, the rumors had started milling. And, of course, everybody, you know, everybody's trying to, to get their piece of the, the story. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. So anyway, the folks had basically just want they wanted to hear from the reverend that Roy and JW had taken his his nephew and that the preacher's nephew had been killed. I mean, for all intents and purposes, everybody all the black people in, in Mississippi were like, Ah, we're saying prayers that you get him back, but But we've already told everybody that the preacher's nephew was killed. Pretty much, dude. Pretty much. Fuck. Now, Roy Bryant was sleeping on the day that all the locals gathered at Reverend's house to start praying for Emmett. Now, the hope of Emmett being alive was still like, come on, man, come on. It was like everybody was thin air Mm -hmm. on this one. Now, Carolyn Bryant kind of set the scene in her memoir that she shared with Timothy Tyson about this morning when Roy and JW had returned. Now, Carolyn had asked them where they had gone and what they had done with Emmett. Now, the information in her story supports that the two men did bring Emmett to the store for her to properly identify him, but was never revealed if she had been the person in the vehicle at the Reverend's house. She said that they brought somebody to the store, but it wasn't Emmett. She said it wasn't the right boy. Okay. Oh, she's so full of shit. So... Roy told his wife because she had asked, like, where have you been and what would you do with the kid? So Roy told his wife that they had been in another town close by in Glendora um, where another store was owned by the family. And they had been playing poker inside the store. And he claimed that they were there all night. He said that they had been with JW and the other brother and all their friends. Now, in Carolyn's version of the story, she had been told that they just whipped the boy and then they dropped him off on the side of the road and bailed. But he was still alive. Okay. I don't believe it. Me <laughs> Wrong answer. Wrong answer. That's her version of the story. She said that they insisted that he was alive. And she said that she believed them at that time. Now, when the sheriff arrived at the Bryant's, she said that Roy was still in bed and she fetched him to the sheriff. 
Now, the sheriff and his deputy escorted Roy out to the car. Now, at this point, he wasn't under arrest. They were just taking him out there to talk, okay? And the sheriff had asked him, did you go to the Wright's house and did you snatch a little black kid from his bed? And at this point, Roy says, yeah. Oh, I figured he'd be like, nope. I don't know. I was drunk. Now, I don't remember (laughs) shit. Roy admitted that he had gone to the house and... (laughs) Sorry. The sheriff wants to know why. And Roy says, well, after the ugly remarks, um, the kidnapping and the subsequent IDing, that they had snatched the wrong kid and they just turned him loose. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we went. We did. We, we did snatch a little black kid out of his bed. But we took him, we snatched him, and he was ID'd, and it was the wrong one, so we just turned him loose. Even though his family says, says, says. Jesus, says it was the right kid. Well, <laughs> so when the sheriff says, well, where'd you release the boy? Okay. Roy says, right in front of the store. Three miles away. Right in front of the store. Uh-huh. So that kid would, like, had they really turned him loose, he'd have been home. Okay. Now, like, like really soon. Uh-huh. He said that the boy went off with some of his people and that the motley crew of drunk white men had been playing poker all night. Okay. Okay. So Roy was then arrested for the kidnapping of said black child and booked into jail. Okay. Now. But they don't know what black child it was. At this point, things are such a mod podge mess They're like, fuck it, you actually did kidnap somebody, you just admitted it to me in front of this deputy, fuck it, you're under arrest. But I don't want to. So, I'm sure that Sheriff did not, okay? (sighs) So, Moses had actually taken Wheeler during this time, had taken him to catch a train back north, okay? He was like, you get the fuck out of here, which was the smartest thing they could have done. So, at this point, they still have his three sons and his one grandson, Moses still had a lot of acreage, like 26 acres of cotton to farm, mm-hmm. to process and get it ready to sell. And they needed that money, okay? Right. Probably more so now than ever, okay? Mm-hmm. So he only had four helpers instead of five. And not only that, he like he had all this farming to worry about. And more so than that, where the fuck is Emmett? Like, now he's got his nephew, and not like he just ran off. Like No, no, no. He's not busted in and took him. Right. So at this point, he's there are so many things that this poor old preacher is worrying about. And first and foremost in his mind is, holy shit, they still can't find Emmett. And then in the back of his brain, he's like, fuck. Like, how are we going to live? Like, if we can't get all this work done, and you can't blame a person for being afraid for the future, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Being oh, like, right. holy shit, how are we going to handle this? Yeah, that's a lot of shit to fucking think about. It really is. So, the day after Roy had been arrested for this kidnapping charge, the Bryant-Millam family had gathered to discuss what come next comes next okay so apparently it was a pretty well-known fact that roy was like the weakest link in the family okay goodbye you are the the weakest weakest link. link goodbye okay so while it wasn't a good thing that roy had been arrested everybody was like fuck okay listen we all know that he'll crack under pressure he's already been arrested and before he starts singing like a fucking canary we gotta figure out what to do 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So at that point, JW had actually decided that he was going to let himself, quote, let himself be arrested. Okay. So he can be in the same cell to tell him to shut the fuck up. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. So they didn't want for Roy to start blabbermouthing and implicate the family on any other troubles. Bigger trouble than what was already brewing. Okay. So Eula Lee is like, you go get arrested. And JW's like, fine, I'll let myself get arrested. I'll turn myself in. Pretty much, dude. He volunteered. So he goes into jail with Roy, feeds him the story that the family concocted while JW's on the outside. Okay. Right. Now, at this point, he's like, listen, this is what happened. This is our story. You don't say anything outside of what I tell you to fucking say. Okay. (laughs) Write this down because you're going to need to remember it. Right. So, this would prevent Roy from prattling on and getting anybody else into additional trouble. Now, after JW was booked, he admitted to the kidnapping and said nothing further. He didn't even implicate Roy. So, he was willing. Oh, damn. But here's why. Because he's the stoic, like, he's going to be able to carry this load. He's Mm -hmm. like, fuck it. Yeah, I took the kid. What are you going to do about it? Now, I don't say shit. (laughs) <laughs> so but what he doesn't want to do he doesn't want to get his dipshit little brother in trouble right so he doesn't even implicate roy okay now the third day after the forced entry and abduction on the Wright's property emmett's body surfaces okay and here's where shit gets fucked up y'all so just letting you know because it wasn't already fucked up leading up to now yeah, now it gets real fucked up. That's real fucked up. Now, a 17-year-old boy named Robert Hodges had actually been um, checking his fishing lines out on the Tallahatchie when he saw something in the dark waters. He said, I seen two feet and knees. Now, this was three days after the incident, August 31st, 1955. The sharecropper's son, Robert, had been going and checking, hoping for catfish, okay? And what he finds is toes. Now, the toes were connected to a body that was snared to something on the bottom of the muddy river, okay? And it was it was pretty apparent that the body wasn't going anywhere and the like the water was running, so they knew that it was snagged on something. Well, Carolyn had learned later that the when the body had been discovered she said that she was actually really shocked because she really did believe this is what she says she says she really believed they let him go uh-oh and now there's a body i hope she felt shitty i know that sounds mean but fuck i hope she did too like here guilty conscience platter hello hello fuck you're this is you you did this shit like you blew it you out happy of proportion now? You see how your little fucking stories turn into way more bullshit than it's worth? Right. So it was actually Roy's twin brother, Raymond, that came to Carolyn with the news and was like, yo, they found the body. And at this point, Carolyn's like, no, 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 because Roy said that they let him go. And Roy always tells the truth. Roy and JW always (laughs) tell the truth. Stand up, guys. Mm-hmm. So he, Raymond, would actually go on and be like, no, no, it wasn't Roy or JW that actually killed the boy. It was Melvin. Who wasn't even there. Or he was the He could have been, could have been the not. masked, hooded character in the background. Nobody knows. But later it would come about that, yeah, he was present. There were a lot of other people that were present. So he said that he wasn't supposed to tell anybody. 
Okay. It was Melvin. It was our brother-in-law. I'm not supposed to tell. So you be quiet. So Carolyn's like, right. So he wasn't supposed to tell. And Carolyn said that the rest of the Bryant Millam bunch um, had been told like what to say. And she, okay. They told Raymond, this is what you tell her to say and nothing else. So this whole story that they put together, they basically wrote out scripts for everybody. This is what you say. This is what you say. And this is what you know. And after they say this, this is your line. You and be if quiet. you're asked this, then you don't say anything. Pretty much. After that, she was actually taken by the Millam family members. Her and her two sons were actually taken. And she went from home to home where her and her boys would stay for a few days and then they would be taken somewhere else. Now, they were doing this in an attempt to keep her from her family so she couldn't spill beans to them and the townspeople and the sheriff so that she couldn't say shit to them either because nobody like, you know, loose lips sink ships. So they would take her and cart her off so that she didn't spill too much. Now, they kept her isolated even from her own family. She wasn't allowed to touch a telephone. She wasn't allowed to talk to anybody outside of the family. And when um, her, so Carolyn's brother would actually come to try and find her because the Holloways, her mother and brother and such, hadn't Mm -hmm. heard from her. And the Millums would intercept and be like, she doesn't want to talk to you. She's not here. She's mad at you because that one time. At band camp. Mm -hmm. So they had her under incredibly close watch. And that's what they would continue to tell her family. They, she doesn't want to talk to you and she's not here. So the sheriff had advised to the Morningstar reporters that he intended to bring Carolyn in for questioning, but he kind of figured that, you know, the wife of Roy Bryant, she had to know something since, you know, it was her that Emmett ultimately offended and insulted, right? Mm-hmm. Well... <laughs> the, New York, the New York Post had gone on to say that a warrant had been issued for, for Carolyn Bryant and that they were in search of her to bring her in for questioning. And the, the Millums kept like bouncing her around so that she couldn't be pinpointed. <sighs> so. I see. Mm-hmm. Later, the Chicago Daily had actually reported that the law was unable to locate her. Now, the warrant would never be served because they couldn't find her. And the Birmingham News, 48 hours later, reported that the search for Karen, Karen, God damn it, Karen, Where do you want to speak to the manager? <laughs> Carolyn, 48 hours after the, the warrant for her arrest had been issued, it was abandoned. They were like, ah, oh, fuck it, we can't find her. Okay, never mind, we're good. So I don't want to look that hard. Yeah. Carolyn would actually not even realize that she had a warrant for her arrest until decades later later really she had no fucking idea okay she had not even an inkling of an idea that they had a desire to speak with her that's how isolated she was Damn. the fbi in like 2006 was like yeah there really was a warrant out for your arrest she's like what now <laughs> sorry i giggle because i'm like fuck man 50 years later you're like there was a warrant for my arrest that still has to make your stomach drop. Well, it, just her fucking conscious, con- conscious that word, guilty conscience hmm. has to be eating her away. So if not, then she's. I don't know fucked. how that bitch slept Mm-mm. for for real. I don't know how you fucking slept at night or still sleep. Fuck. So apparently, Sheriff Smith had been the one to decide. 
48 hours after the warrant was issued. Not to bother the pretty little wife of Roy Bryant because he said she's got two kids to take care of. Her husband's already in jail. She got plenty to worry about. Let's just leave her alone. They didn't question her because they figured she had too much to do anyway. Right. You only had two kids. Right. Two. Okay, when you have like nine and shit, then... Then we can talk, but you have two. Two. I I think you can do it just fine by yourself. You're fine. Okay. Now, Especially with all the family. You're staying with fucking people. You'll be fine. Oh, my God. For real, dude. So, reeling it back to Robert Hodges and his fishing lines. So, the teen fisherman who spotted Emmett's corpse actually finished checking all of his fishing lines. Okay? Before he goes to tell his dad like that, that he found a body. Okay? Mm-mm. This is, like... It makes me uncomfortable that he was so comfortable. He's like, oh, shit, look, toes and knees. Better go check these fishing lines and then I'll get back to you. Mm -mm. So he goes home and he reports the corpse to his dad. Now, the Hodges family landlord was who they alerted. Okay. They didn't even call authorities. They went to the landlord, Mr. Mims. Okay. And they said, we found a body in the Tallahatchie River. Okay. My my kid was checking if fishing lines found a fucking body. So the landlord calls his brother, Charles, and the, they call a deputy, Garland, in Tallahatchie County. The deputy then calls the sheriff, H.C. Strider. H.C. Strider. Now, Sheriff Strider contacted his teenage son. Okay, so this is how, this is how the news traveled. There's a body. I'm going to tell my dad. My dad told the landlord. The landlord told his brother, who told the deputy, who called the sheriff. And 17 years later, everybody finally knew. Jesus, fuck. So the sheriff, H.C. Strider, calls his teenage son. Because he's in charge. And says, do you have a boat in the water? There's, we got a body. Do you have a boat? Can you go retrieve the body with your boat? So the his teenage son says, yeah, I got a boat in the water. So Strider says, head up to this location. We're going to send some deputies. We got to get corpse out of the river. Okay. Oh, my God. I don't like it. So 12 miles north of money, deputies all gather. Deputy Melton, Deputy Weber, and they meet up with the sheriff's kid. And they head to a place called Pelican Point where they met up with the Hodge family. And they both get, get this. Okay. The teenage boys were the ones that had boats in the water. Like the law couldn't be bothered to get their own equipment. No, no. They relied on a young black teenager and his teenage, a white teenage kid to have boats in the water so they could go retrieve a corpse. It's okay. We can save that on the budget because there's a bunch of teenage kids that have their you know boots boots my god i'm struggling i know i'm not even talking that much today and i cannot say the words boots yep let's go get the body with the boots they and the teenagers and the teenagers so they all hop in these boats and they head up to the location where they all quickly see what robert saw they navigated to a partially sunken body and like i said it was pretty obvious that the head was snagged or weighted down so the men tied ropes around the legs of the corpse and used the motor power from the boat to pull the body over to the bank, okay? Now, 
After towing the body over, they haul the corpse up onto land, and upon inspection, whoever sank this kid did not want him to be found. They found, uh, so it was an iron fan from a cotton gin, like great big ventilation fan. God damn. Now, these things weigh about 150 pounds, okay? So this fan weighed about as much, maybe a little bit less than the actual body, and they had affixed it around his neck with barbed wire. Mm. Oh, hell. Mm-hmm. So the fan is at least 150 pounds, and it's packed with mud and debris from dragging along the bottom of the Tallahatchie River. Now, authorities from both LaFleur and Tallahatchie counties had arrived to the scene to examine the body. Um, in my mind, I see a bunch of deputy dipshits poking a dead body with a stick. That's uh-huh. their version of examining things. I don't know this. This is me just being like, you got a bunch of fucking redneck Mm -hmm. hick cousin fuckers out here to to examine a body okay now sheriff strider noted what appeared to be a bullet hole above the right ear but the face was so badly beaten up and cut up that they were like jesus and this is why you caution googling yeah yeah because you'll see every bit of that yes you will so sheriff strider says that it was cut up bad like an axe was used okay Uh. Yeah. Based on the condition of the body and the bloat, the sheriff had guessed that the body was in the water for at least two days. Now, the deputies were sent to collect Reverend Moses Wright from money to identify the body of Emmett Till. There was an undertaker for central money, or excuse me, central, fuck me. They contacted an undertaker for Central Burial Association in Greenwood to come get the body now this was a just so that we're clear this is a black undertaker that shows up first okay mm-hmm. his name is chester miller from the cba along with his assistants come down to the river and miller would go on to testify that when he approached the body it was face down a large wheel had been well wrapped that's his words well oh, wrapped God. around the neck i don't like it they said <laughs> take it back no, i don't like it take it back the body was turned over for moses to identify and he just stood over the body like trying to take all of this in because he's seeing his nephew for the first time and the last time kind of thing you know what i mean so Uh. the reverend they they had actually unwound the barbed wire from the neck to remove the fan and even in the horrible state that the body was in considering that like the brutal piece that would have been his face And then being underwater for Mm -hmm. how long? Two days at least. Mm -hmm. So Moses knew it was him, and he would nod to the Undertaker Miller and be like, yeah, that's him. But not only that, that ring that came from his father that was engraved with LT was on his finger. Miller was asked to remove the ring by one of the officers because he was gloved up. So like he looks at the assistant, and he's like, snatch that ring off the boy. And he takes it off, and he like puts it on the floorboard of the ambulance slash hearse. And at this point, I mean, they're looking at this body, okay? And Miller, the undertaker, is... He's essentially looking at this like, I'm not 100% sure what kind of magic you think I can work on this body, but there is very little we're going to be able to do, okay? What they're looking at is the crown of Emmett's head had been crushed out, okay? And they said that a piece of his skull had literally fallen out and onto the floor of the boat. Oh, God. About three inches long and two inches wide when they yanked his body out of the water. Do you, okay, 
do you think any of them like they were so calloused with all of that shit back then do you think any of them got sick or do you think it was just like man whatever here we go again um well we'll get to that the they've got a piece of his skull has fallen off of his head right and the undertaker and his assistants took emmett and they placed him into a casket right from there they put the casket into a metal shipping crate all right and at this point the undertaker's like this has got to be a closed casket right uh yeah okay closed casket ceremony miller the undertaker thought that the sheriff would contact the family to let them know that emmett's body had been recovered instead he turns to the undertaker and moses and he's like that body will go in the dirt at your church today oh uh-huh so instead of talking to mamie whatsoever sheriff strider was like buried today nobody sees the body it goes in the dirt so because he doesn't want to have to answer to anybody about what happened fuck no he doesn't want anybody to see emmett Okay, that so apparently this guy was like big stick walking tall fucking what I say go Sheriff Strider. Okay, mm-hmm. essentially that's what I got from mm-hmm. the book. Now, since there was nobody really, um, excuse me, since nobody really knew where Emmett had been murdered, it was kind of up to the authorities to determine juris addiction. Okay, mm-hmm. so. Sheriff Strider would, he insisted, he's like, this happened in Tallahatchie County. I'm going to be prosecuting this. This is all my jurisdiction. I thought it'd be like, not it. No, he wanted this. So he said that the kidnapping may have taken place in money, but based on where the body was, because it couldn't float upstream, obviously, he said that they had to have been like at least 10 miles into Tallahatchie County, therefore making it his. Okay. Okay. Now... The DA sided with Strider, was like, fuck it, yours. So Sheriff Strider was like, no reason for an autopsy, okay? Kid's dead, there's a hole right here. What looks like a bullet hole, you don't need to to perform an autopsy. No. He just bumped his head. Zero reason to, I mean, where the skull fell out in the back, sometimes that happens when they're in the water too long. Yeah. It's totally normal. No, and he he still, all the while, he's like, body, ground, now. So it was actually Crosby Smith who had agreed to get the body back to Mamie. Okay. So while this is all going down, and she, I don't know if she knew, but she had basically been like, I don't give a fuck, find my son, I want him back. Yeah. So he had agreed, okay, to Mamie. He was like, I'll get it back to you if I have to pack him on ice type shit. Oh. Okay. So when she had learned that from Curtis's mother, that the funeral was about to take away. So here's what happens. She wanted very much for Emmett to come back to Chicago, obviously where yeah. they lived. Now, Curtis had gone to the house and he sees Moses preparing a eulogy and setting out his attire for the funeral. So Curtis is like, Oh shit. So he runs and calls his mom, who tells Mamie, like, holy fuck, they're preparing him for funeral right now. And so she gets up with Crosby, and she's like, you bring my son back to me. I don't care how. I don't care what shape he's in. You bring my son back. Oh, no. I wouldn't know. 
I so don't like it. he promises, says, you know, if I have to pack him on ice and rent a fucking truck, I will get your son back to you. Crosby goes to a deputy that had some sympathies for the family. Okay. He was a little bit more empathetic. Uh, let's put it this way. This guy actually had a heart and was a fucking human being. Wow. Those oh. are hard to come by. So right. From what, I've from what I gather, Mississippi fucking lacks humans. Okay. <laughs> they are all robots. So they head to the cemetery where Mr. Miller, the undertaker, and his people have dug a hole for Emmett. And the deputy walks out with Crosby and he was like, listen, what this man says goes. And that, you know, you got a a white man addressing and saying this black man, what he says goes. The graves dug, the casket's there, and Crosby looks at him and he was like, stop, that body's not going in the back in the ground. That body goes to Chicago. Where Sheriff Strider thought that he was going to be able to sweep this one under the rug. Nay, nay, nay. Motherfucker. Motherfucker. He thought that he was going to be able to bury all the dirt with Emmett, okay, on this entire thing. Mm-mm. Not going to happen, okay? Before the body was snuck into the ground and Mamie would not have her justice, Mr. Miller is standing there. White deputy says what this man says goes, and Crosby says that body goes to Chicago. Um, Miller, the Greenwood undertaker, the, mm-hmm. the black gentleman, would say, okay, listen, I took this body out of the river. I picked up the body. I put it in a casket. I brought it here. And I was told that this is supposed to be buried, okay? Like, I get it. You you want the body? Well, this is starting to upset me, okay? He said, I can only take this body so far. And here's his, his mm-hmm. qualms with it. He said... I can't have this body sitting in my establishment overnight. He said, in not so many words, that it was bad luck to defy Sheriff Strider. And if he did, he might not have a, a home or a life come morning. Oh, shit. Now, keep in mind, this is a black undertaker. So Yeah, so he's got to do what is what was told by... Sheriff Strider. Yep. Moses took to the phone. He contacted a white undertaker, uh, Mr. Nelson, 40 miles away in a place called Tutwiler. Now, Nelson had two funeral homes, one for whites, one for blacks, okay? Mm -hmm. And he agreed that he would take Emmett to his funeral home for colored folks. Finger quotes. The colored home. Okay. Isn't Uh, that nice? Yeah, it's lovely. I know. So, he was actually, Mr. Nelson was a man of considerable wealth. He also doubled as the town's mayor. He wasn't as bowled over by Sheriff Strider, okay? Mm-hmm. A, it's not your town. B, I'm the motherfucking mayor. So he was like, yeah, sure, bring him here. Now, his stipulation was, okay, we're going to put this body in this casket and we're going to seal it and it does not get opened ever. And Moses, who had no chance of keeping that promise was like yeah sure you put the body in the box the box doesn't open (laughs) i giggle because still this undertaker the white undertaker's like nobody will see this body right wink nod wink wink nod nod and of course the reverend the preacher is going to tell them whatever he needs to tell them to get the body back to mamie okay now the body was in such bad state Okay, that he could not be embalmed as oh, regular. So yeah. it couldn't be done like an intravenous preservation. I've been thinking about that this whole time. Like, uh-huh. I wonder how we're doing this because. Well, I'm fixing to tell you. So tell basic- me. Tell me now. 
what they did, what they could do was they took Emmett's swollen waterlogged body they made a bunch like hundreds of tiny little incisions in his body to release the gases oh i don't like it and then they sank his entire body into a vat of formaldehyde (gasps) and that's the best they could do okay to ship him to chicago and this is where the the undertaker was like do not open that fucking box okay Uh a when i tell you what they've done to emmett's body jesus fuck all right and the fact that he's been in the fucking water for two, maybe three days. And the best they could do was cut holes in the flesh to release the gases that had already started due to decomposition and fucking waterlogging and then soak him in formaldehyde. Like, that's the best I can do, okay? Yeah, I don't like it. Now, Mamie took all of her grief, all right, and made it very public. She had gone to Chicago radios, newspaper, TV. I mean, they were already covering the lynching before she'd ever yeah. got the body back, right? Now, here's here's a doozer, okay? So, an episode of I Love Lucy had actually been interrupted to bring coverage of Emmett Till's body being recovered and coming back to Chicago. Holy shit. So... People knew that Mamie's agony over her son was going to be a catalyst that just slingshotted shit. I mean, the civil actions that were already bubbling, okay? Now, her, her, her words, I wanted my son's crucifixion to be that of a resurrection. Like, she was going to do something out of this. He wasn't going to die for nothing. Damn. Okay? The undisclosed location where Milliman Bryant began the task of punishing Emmett could have been as far away as J.W.'s store in Glendora, which was 30 miles away. Now, J.W., Bryant, Melvin, and their friend, Hubert Clark, supposedly had been playing cards and drinking when the subject of Emmett had come about. The smart-talking boy from Chicago, the one that had whistled at Carolyn. Now, as for the men who worked for Big Boy Millam, there was a man by a man by the name of Henry Lee Loggins and another man named Levi Collins. And these were likely the black men to be present when shit hit the fan, okay? Um, during the game, it was decided that these offenses of Emmett's could not go unchecked. So JW had borrowed an old truck of his friends. And um, they decided not to take his car because it was brand new and it would be far too recognizable. So they take this old... Huh? Sorry. They just walk in there with their faces showing. They're obviously not worried about being recognized. Hello, you were seen. Your face. You fucking announced that this is Roy Bryant on your front porch. Motherfucker, are you worried about the vehicle you took him in? You had the face with the face and said your name. Uh, Just saying. Hello? Now, so they take this truck, and here's where things get a little off and inconsistent. Now, did they go get Carolyn and bring her along to ID the kid, or did she refuse? Now, she always maintains that the boy that they brought to the store for her to ID was the wrong kid, okay? And that it wasn't Emmett, and then the men hauled the teenager back to wherever they'd been drinking and whooped him or whatever, let him go, okay? Now, J.W., Roy, Clark, and Campbell were all present and had some combo of black men that worked for them with them. And it was said that there were two black laborers that had been in the back of the vehicle to hold Emmett while they were riding to 
different locations to keep Emmett from escaping the back of the truck. Now, this will vary from different documentaries that say Emmett rode in the back of the truck alone. Okay. So some say that there were men holding him and that they actually had to stop at a juke joint to get more hired help to hold him because he was fighting so hard to get away. However, others would say that he rode in the back of the truck by himself and that he never attempted to get away. And that was like showing his strength. Holy shit. What what part of that is accurate? I don't know. Okay. So, like I said, was he being held there? I don't know. Did he stay in the back of the truck and just show them that he wasn't afraid and didn't try to run away? I don't know. If he said yeah when they asked who he was. Right. I have a feeling that he probably did sit back there by himself. Fuck. I don't know. I mean, clearly I wasn't there, but I could see right. him if he's answering yes. Yeah. Even don't. though he, or maybe he didn't think it through that they didn't know. know what he looked like either. Cause I really didn't think it through at first either. I don't know. I don't know. Now, here's what we do know, okay? Over an hour's worth of beating, berating, and torture had taken place. Emmett was not dead nor unconscious when they decided to take him to a bluff that overlooked the Mississippi about an hour away. Here, on this 100-foot drop, is where they were going to scare Emmett, right? So they took turns, grown men took turns, beating the shit out of a 14-year-old kid, all right? And they had taken him up to this bluff, and they were like... You know, we were going to throw, like, pretend to, like, dang him over, dangle him over the edge and, like, push him out there and scare him, okay? Now, the men that supposedly restrained him, the, the black men that worked for the white men, okay? Now, they didn't really have to guess what was going to take place and what was going to happen to this kid they're holding, right? Yeah, they knew what was going to go on. Yep. Um, so, the white men had piled into the cab of the truck, their victim in the back with the black employees. And it was said that one of the men that was holding him was having such a hard time, they stopped and got more people to hold him down. Uh. Okay. Even though they knew Emmett wasn't going to make this out alive, and even though he was only a boy, none of them contested what was going down at all. And was that the fear that if they said or did or protested, they would be next? Probably. I'm going to assume that, yeah, um, they knew that he wasn't going to make it out alive. And if they fucked around, they wouldn't make it out alive either. No, not at all. So if they were, I mean, I mean, for a lack of better words, they knew there was room for them in that river too. Yeah. And they weren't afraid to do it. Like, no, you're going to fuck on me. And exactly. You go too. In the grand scheme of things, in 1955, the testimony of a black man in court anyway was all for fucking not. Like, it might as well have been gibberish. You know what I mean? They didn't give a shit. I like, don't understand what you're saying. No, this it was is, useless. We're out. You're done. Go. It didn't matter what those black men saw. Mm-mm. Even if they had testified, the court would be like, ah, black man testifying in a white court, completely inadmissible. You heard nothing. <laughs> Like the what? The what good is the te- pretending to type? But she's not. Oh, oh, she's just like po- she's not really. pecking the period key. Yeah. Pink, 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 pink. I don't know what he said. I couldn't hear him. I don't know. So, you know, I think this is my speculation. Had they suffered so much, su- like <coughs> they they had suffered so much internal suppression that they were just like, "Fuck it, we do what we're told." Yeah. Close your eyes. Don't like. If I don't see it, it's not there. Ugh. Okay. That sucks. Now, 
the truck drove looking for a proposed spot for quite some time to continue punishing Emmett. All right. Mm. Well, the truck drove and drove and they ended up at the farm of Leslie Millam. Okay. Now, this is where they would go on and continue to torture Emmett. Um, Leslie Millam was one, one of the Millam boys was not very happy to see this vehicle roll up with all these drunk shit, the bed of the truck, with Black Kid in there, okay? Yeah. Now, it was shortly before sunrise when they would arrive, and once they were there, he's like, fuck, man, listen, I got a lot of work to do today, and I don't need you guys keeping me up, blah, blah, blah. They were, he, and he was like, go use the shed and be done, okay? Oh, fuck. So, eventually, Leslie did have a lot of work to do that day, but he eventually joined them in the shed, Okay. Now, this is where... why not? Well, everybody else is doing it. I might as well go see what's going on. Fuck, I'm awake now. Jesus, there's no going back to sleep. I'm going to go kick this black kid around, see if it makes me feel better. That's essentially what he did. (sighs) Okay. He knew. He fucking... They pulled up. He knew. He saw. He went back to the house and then went to the shed like, fuck it, me too. Like, really? All right, if you're all there, I don't want to miss out on a party. I guess if you're going to do it too. I'm sober, but I can catch up. Catch me up. <laughs> Jesus. So once they're inside this shed, Emmett is pulled from the vehicle and he's beaten again, except this time with shattering force. Okay. And this is where we go back to the men doing this. Did they at any time feel sick? Did they feel remorse? Did they stop and look and see what they were doing? No. I'm going to say that if anybody felt bad, maybe Roy. Maybe. Mm. Okay. The other men that were present, absolutely not. And here's why. Most of the blows were to the head. And the principal weapon that was used was that 40, were the 45 pistols. Now, those pistols being used were Ithaca brand. And they weighed more than carpenter's hammers. Holy those pistols shit. weigh over two and a half pounds. It's also very likely that tools that were in that shed were used yeah. because the left side of Emmett's face was hacked on, okay? Mm-hmm. He had been sliced across the bridge of his nose, um, and it was later said that it looked like he took an axe, like, across his nose and his cheeks. He probably did, those stupid He fucks. was cut with a very heavy blade. Um, now, while no one outside of the shed saw what happened to Emmett, a lot of people heard it. Oh, hell no. It was also said that clippers may have been used because he was missing a portion of his ear. And there were like deep cuts, like clips to his face. Now, Willie Reed was a kid that lived around that area that had been sent to the store by his granddad right around dawn. And as he walked to the store, he saw four white men in the cab hop out and three blacks hollow boy into the shed. Now, Willie had cr- like he had cut across this field and he could hear what he describes as disgusted sounds of Emmett being bashed by these men. Okay. His pleas for murder. Okay, hold on. Let me get my shit together so I don't cry. How old was that kid? The kid that heard all this shit going down. Um, I want to say he was like in between 15 to 17. Holy fuck. Okay. I'm about to throw up. Yeah. I don't so like it. he 
he could hear them bashing Emmett as he was like begging for mercy. And at one point in time, like Willie stopped and was kind of watching. And JW had come out of the shed, gone to the well and took a drink and like washed blood off of himself and then went like hasty return back to the shed. Okay. The things that he, Willie, would hear as well as other neighbors that live nearby. Like, that's how fucking loud this shit went. And went nobody on. reported it. Nope. Not one. Even Ma- though they knew that they're looking for somebody. Yep. Okay. So, well, I don't know if these neighbors necessarily knew that they were looking for anybody because this was on the, yeah, like, this was a different early. town. This is, you know what I mean? It's only been three days. Black kid went missing. How many people really knew outside of, like, money? You know what I mean? Yeah. So if it's in a different county, it's an hour away. Like how many of them really did know? Yeah. And how many of them gave a fuck? Okay. Probably not. They're used to hearing that shit right then with the whipping and all that. Yeah. So the things that Willie actually heard from the shed was mama, please save me. Oh God. Please God, don't do it again. He said that the screams and cries of the sounds of whipping is what was like echoing through the neighborhood he said he couldn't count how many blows he heard but there was quote a whole lot of them he said intense screams faded into whispers and then stopped neighbors uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of ad reed who was willie's grandfather had also heard the beating and mandy bradley also supported the claims they heard the boy being decimated in the shed like they could hear it in their home I don't know how they slept after that. So, or did Emmett, anything? No, dude. How would you? How would you even stomach like breathing Mm-mm. at that point? Like you heard a kid get fucked up that bad. You heard it inside your house. Emmett's body bore what they would call evidence of a solidified brutality, like. The evidence on his body basically said that they were using deadly force. Like, you don't swing mm-hmm. on a person without the intent to kill and leave that kind of damage. Mm-hmm. It said it would appear that Till had intended to initially fight off his blows, like defensive n- maneuvers with his arms, like, arms. up above yeah. his head, because they broke his fucking wrists. Ugh. And eventually, he could no longer hold his hands over his head, and blow after crushing blow, Emmett's skull would be shattered and smashed. And that would be the crown of his skull that fell out in the boat had actually been broken and like sank into his skull. His teeth were broken and one was missing. Mamie Bradley would describe that his mouth was in much worse condition, but without the autopsy report, I can't tell you. Okay. Now, other accounts said that Emmett had been castrated and in the book, the blood of Emmett Till says he was not. So without an autopsy report... I can't tell you, okay? Um, Now, I looked for autopsy. Um, It is not readily available. You legitimately have to, like, request that from, like, FBI and shit. Yeah, I can't imagine that's something I want to read. So. At all. Yeah, dude. I I don't know how much more I want to know. Nope. So, what I do know is that his thigh bones were fractured. Okay, the strongest bone in your body, the hardest to break, okay, in both of his legs is fractured. So they were obviously stomping on him or using something mm-hmm. very, very heavy to sit and like bash his legs. Um, 
they had either stomped him or used something way bigger than a pistol. His left eye was gouged out and parts of his ear were missing. And then the shears or the knife um, were likely used to inflict all of the gashes and slices, heavy slices to his face. The equipment in the shed used for farming was no doubt what they used to maim and mutilate him. The cause of death could have been the savage blows that were repeatedly landed on his head because... You know, let's face it, when a chunk of your skull falls out, I'm just going to go ahead and say that it's highly unlikely he would have survived this had he gotten help, but the coup de grace would have been bullet on the right side by his ear. Okay. Fun fact, if it's fun at all. No, it's not. It takes 500 to 1,000 pounds to crack the human skull. So So if you're delivering bare minimum 500 pounds, of force up to and over a thousand if you're fucking swinging on somebody like that to crack their skull you meant to kill them i don't give a shit what anybody says because fucking later we'll get into that where they're like well i didn't mean to hurt the boy yeah you fucking did yeah you did then you don't kick him in the fucking face or hit him or whatever the fuck you you were doing you don't take you don't do that a three pound pistol and crack a kid so many times over his fucking wrist that you break him you don't crush a chunk of their fucking skull out gouge his eye out break his fucking legs like i didn't mean to hurt the kid you lying sack of shit Mm -hmm. fuck you you know what? Fuck you. Fuck your mom. Fuck all your relatives with something sharp and hot and sandpapery. Sandpapery. In your ass. With spikes. With cactus. Dude, I'm just saying that the level of brutality in this attack was like they fucking knew it was going to be fatal and it just drives me absolutely mad that they're like, oh, you know, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't fucking intend to hurt the kid. Really? Now, here's where. You had the quite we were like, fuck, what about Roy? Okay. So apparently, while the other men are taking fucking wax at Emmett, he starts to feel guilty. He's like, shit, like maybe this went too far. Okay. And it was Roy that said, all right, look, let's be done and take him to get some help. Now, their version of getting fucking help was we're going to scoop up what's left of this kid and we're going to drive to the hospital, push him out in front of the doors, and then we're going to drive away. That was their version of help, right? What else would you do? right whale well, um in 1985 decades later a friend secretly recorded a conversation that he had with roy who wore a wore a wire okay uh-huh. and roy finger quotes roy said we done whoop the son of a bitch but i backed out on killing the motherfucker whatever so it was decided that they would take him to a medical center now hear me out Okay, I know that when I say this out loud, people are going to be like, what the fuck? The nicest thing they could have done to Emmett at that particular juncture was kill him. Uh-huh. Okay. The fucking mercy was the bullet. Okay. Yeah. The fact that they had beat this kid's fucking head in, he wasn't going to come out of that. Like, No, and who wants to live through that and remember that? No. I don't think he would have survived it. There's no Mm-mm. fucking way. He... At that point, it was just further suffering for this kid, okay? So, it was decided that they would take him to the medical center in Tallahatchie, all right? This apparently pissed off Melvin, the Mm brother-in-law, who didn't want to take Emmett to the hospital, pulls out his forty-five, puts it to his head, and pulls the trigger, okay? Oh. And that would be 
the end of Emmett Till. Now, like I said, based on the extent of the injuries and how the body would be returned to Mamie, that fucking bullet, like, at least there was no more whipping, smashing, cutting, gouging. Exactly. So, Jesus, fuck, hold on. I just pre-puke slobbers. Yeah, I've been sitting over here about ready to yak the whole time. JW had ordered the black men that were with him to clean off the blood on the floor and to cover it with cotton. They stripped the body and JW put the body in the back of the truck and covered it with a tarp. One of the friends took a car with the clothes and the black men to bury the clothing that belonged to Emmett and the other stayed behind. Now, why they chose to strip the kid nude and bury the clothes is completely beyond me. And maybe that was because it would be harder to identify him if they were like, he was, yeah, he was taken out of the house wearing a white shirt, gray pants and loafer shoes, whatever. And that's the only thing that makes sense to me is that's why they stripped a 14 year old kid down and decided to bury his clothes. Why would you bury him? Why wouldn't you burn him? I have no fucking idea. I asked at, at this predict, nothing. I got lots of things rolling around my brain right now. But they don't. No. They didn't have shit rolling around in their brains, but shit. That's that's exactly what's rolling around their brains. Shit. Shit. Now, this is where J.W., Roy, and the others would go to that shed. They got the barbed wire to affix the fan to Emmett's neck. And they put him in the truck to take him to the river 10 miles away and rolled his body into the swollen river. Okay. Now, prior to the dumping of the body... They had stopped um, at the store. Now, for whatever fucking reason, I have no idea why, what they were doing, but they had stopped, and a young black father and his son had walked by the store where JW was, and they noticed that there was a bunch of blood pooling under the fucking truck, right? And there were two black dudes standing guard at the back of the truck, okay? And that they had their feet on the tarp so that like oh if there had been any wind it wasn't going to blow it up it wasn't lifting that tarp right so the old black man had noticed and noted the blood and at jw was like uh we killed a deer and the black gentleman was like well it's out of season like what are you killing deer for that's you know so jw grabbed the man by the back of the neck walked him over to the truck flipped the tarp open (gasps) Jesus Christ. And said, this is what happens to smart N-words. I don't even want, fuck it, I don't even want to say it. Says, this is what happens. And then flips the tarp back, okay? The man, this black man that had just been, like, shown what was in the back of this truck, rushes off, grabs his kid, and they are fucking gone. Like the fuck out of there. They are beaten dirt. Yeah, they're cloud of dust. They're out of there. Now, he... Now, it goes goes on to say that this man had never talked about what he actually saw in the back of the truck. Was it a whole bunch of blood, or did he actually see Emmett's body? Hopefully, he just saw blood and a toe or something. Shit, I don't know. Here we've got... People know. People know what has happened. They fucking heard it. They saw it. And later, we'll talk about that. However, remember William Bradford Huey, the journalist? He was the one, the journalist. He was the one that would go on and be like, well, Emmett basically, he basically committed suicide. Okay. 
He says that Emmett bragged about having screwed white women, that the picture of the white woman in his pocket, okay, now while he's being beaten, he says, Till called them all bastards, declared that he was as good as they were, and that he had had lots of sexual encounters with lots of white women, and that's why they had to kill him. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's 14. Okay. A, as you're having your fucking wrists, legs, and head broken, do you... Uh, I don't know. Maybe he was like, bunch of bastards. I'm every bed is good. Like, at that point, if you know you're going to die, fuck it. Talk shit. Talk shit. Like, they're going to hit you either way. Mm-hmm. So, did he? I don't know. But... That was what started circulating. Well, you know, he was so brash and boastful and he was talking about shagging white women. Said he was as every said he was as good as white men. They had to kill him. He basically committed suicide. And that was the what the journalist said? Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So what happens next? Okay. Even what? if he was saying that shit, nobody deserves that. No. Fuck. Nobody. I don't give a shit, dude. That's what really bothers me. You know, when people talk about how big my son is. Yeah. And they're like, dude, that's a that's a man. That's a fucking 16-year-old kid. Yeah. I don't care how tall he is. I don't care how big he is. That's a fucking boy. Mm-hmm. You couldn't... Fuck. I wish I had a video camera right fuck now. Fuck you. You couldn't look at a fucking... Five foot six, hundred and sixty pound, fourteen year old kid see a fucking kid? Fuck you. You are a cruel, heartless scab of a fucking person. Just saying. Exactly. You're not even a person. No. You're fucking stray dog poo. Ugh. With worms in it. The extra smelly kind. I just yeah, the runs dude. they can't even clean up Ugh, runny dog poo smell ew oh, speaking of dogs they obviously didn't let my dog in so what happens next well I will tell you next week cause now we now we're done for today thank Jesus yeah man <laughs> cause I'm about to throw up you're like I think about had enough so Next, we have the funeral, the open casket, the trial, the tremble of Mamie. Here's where we stop. Till next week. Ha ha, fuckers. This is it. Leave you here. Right now. I'm done. I'm done. Peace out. Drop the mic. Just kidding. I love you, but fuck off till next Wednesday. Yes. So maybe, um, I don't know. Wash your hands. Use hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. Don't abduct and murder teenage kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, stay, stay out, out of chalk, chalk lines. lines. Goodbye. Goodbye.